You are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. All right. Well, we're back in our series in Genesis. Uh, One of the things about, uh, you know, social media has its great benefits and it has its great challenges. One of the, I guess, the benefits of it is you get to see everyone's Easter pictures and you get to know when everyone's birthday is and you get to be reminded of which Star Wars character you most represent if you take those quizzes. Those are good things, right? And then there's some kind of strange things about social media is uh, how many triangles are in this picture and then that determines your personality or no one really cares what your high school mascot was. I hate to tell you. I hate to be reminded. But um, the bad side, I think, is, is that, that we've talked about it before, is that comparison where we, we project something and how great we are so that other people will, will see that and think, man, look how successful they are. They get to do all those things and we never get to do it. They might, they're so much better than we are. And, and when we come to our chapter today, Genesis 36, it feels a little bit like that. It's, it's, a, it's a text that it seems a little bit out of place. And it's one that most of us skip by because really all it is is a bunch of names. But if you read it and you understand what it is, it's in essence Esau's Facebook. He is, this is, this is what his family has accomplished. These are all the great things about Esau and how he has been successful. It's his family tree. It's their accomplishments. It's how great and successful they have become. And on the surface, it, it really seems like they are. And what makes matters a little bit more challenging is if you remember the initial audience who Moses is writing is the Israelites who were wandering around the desert for 40 years. And they're reading and hearing about how successful Esau is and how great they are and how progressive their nation has become. And here they are wearing the same clothes every day, eating the same meal every day, no home, no king, And they're supposed to be God's elect. They're supposed to be God's chosen. And for some reason, God has Moses put this passage in there for them to see how successful Esau has become. So the question is, why? Why would God do that? And I think that's that's really what we want to talk about today. There's some principles here for a wandering people. Uh, to see, and, and that's significant for us because we are called sojourners in the Bible, that we're wanderers, that our home is ultimately not here, that our home is somewhere else. And I think the principles that apply to Israel are the same for us. So let's see why God has this passage here. There's been many promises made to this family and this family tree. So Abraham uh, was gonna be the father of many nations. There was gonna be kings that came from him. His son Isaac, that promise was gonna go through him. Isaac has two sons, Esau, the older, Jacob, the younger, whose name was changed to Israel. And Jacob was gonna be the one through who the promise comes that God said, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, right? Uh, he deceives his older brother and he steals the blessing. But there's promises for Esau as well. We saw uh, his dad said that you will live by the sword and that you will be restless. And that one day you will break the yoke of your brother even though you will serve the younger. And so we've seen these two brothers come back after 20 years of being alienated uh, and then they separated again and Jacob goes off and lives in the promised land in Canaan and Esau, he goes and lives in the south in a place called Edom or Seir. 
Um, and they're both doing pretty well for themselves. I mean, they got a lot of sheep, they got a lot of goats, their, their clan is, is growing. But at this point in history, it seems like Esau's winning, that he's thriving when Jacob is not. And so let me just jump in. We're not gonna read the entire chapter because it is a bunch of names, but I want to show you that the structure is, and I want to just talk about a couple quick lessons from a passage like this. In chapter 36 of Genesis, verses one and two. These are the generations of Esau. That is Edom. And it's gonna say that several times because it, the, Moses wants us to know that Esau equals Edom. The nation of Edom, the kingdom of Edom, comes from Esau. So Esau took wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Olahabama, the daughter of Enah, the daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth. All right, so you're looking for baby names for some girls, there you go, Basemath, that's, that's your one right there. But we, what we, we see is Esau has at least three wives, three of them mentioned here. Okay, and he actually probably has more that are mentioned elsewhere, but these maybe these are his three favorite, maybe these are the three that are alive at this time, we don't know. But he has wives, plural, and both him and Jacob have both made this mistake and, and really in disobedience to Genesis 2 where God said a man leaves his father and mother, clings to his wife, singular, and the two become one. Every time there's multiple wives, there's trouble. Doesn't matter who it is, David, Solomon, all of them, Jacob, Esau, there's, there's trouble. Uh, to Jacob's credit, he takes wives from his own family, from his own clan. Initially, he only wanted one. He wanted Rachel, right? He was tricked into marrying her sister, and so he marries them both eventually, and then they see that they want to have more children. They have this competition, so he ends up getting two more out of that. Um, but at least he stays inside the family. Esau, we saw before, he marries outside because he wants to stick it to his parents. So he marries two ladies from the local place, uh, from, the, from the Canaanites, from the uh, pagan nations who drive their mother-in-law insane, right? And he does it because he's trying to get back at them. Um, but th- this is, is a telling piece of who Esau is. And I'll, and I'll say this, besides your decision to follow Christ, become a believer, the most important decision you will probably make is who you will marry. Because it really determines or it reveals what is in your heart, Right, the, per, the kind of person, the person you marry. Esau is a man who is led by his appetites. He's like Samson, he's gonna come a couple hundred years later. He sees a woman, he says, she looks good to me, I want her, he takes her. And that's what drives him. The writer of the Hebrews says this about Esau. Uh, see, when no one, see that no one, tells, no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And that no one is sexually immoral or unholy the old King James says, profane or godless. Don't be godless like Esau. Esau has no God. Esau has his own God. He does what he wants. He is driven by his appetites. And so he says, I want to marry her. I want to marry her. I want to marry her. And so he just, that's how he leads his life, right? That's how he, it's what drives him. And I've, and we've said it before, and this is kind of just a side note, but let me encourage the single folks that are in our church, the high school students, even college students, God is, is clear in scripture. You can marry anybody, you're free to marry anybody you want inside the faith. Inside the faith. Uh, and, and as a practical application, if that's true of marriage, then I would say that it is unwise to date someone who is outside the faith. Because what ends up happening is you get connected and there's emotional connection and there's intimacy built and then you're no longer objective and you ended up making 
poor decisions, all right? Because you get connected on an emotional level to someone. And, and, and let me also say this, attraction is important. We, we, we like to play all spiritual, like, no, it doesn't really matter. Yes, it does. Attraction matters. There's no doubt about it. And that's, that's not a bad thing, right? But we have to understand that, that marriage is built on more than physical attraction because eventually the hair starts to fall off your head and starts to grow in your ears. Uh, and, and so it, it's gotta be built on something bigger than that. And ultimately, is marriage is a picture of, of God's relationship with his church. It's unconditional love, right? And, and, and it's supposed to picture that because in the end, no spouse, no person will ever fill the void uh, that, that God can fill, right? And, and when we try to find that in a, in a mate, that they're gonna meet all my dreams and desires and expectations, then those failed expectations end up making us bitter and upset. And so it's gotta be built on that common a covenant with God and that relationship with God. So let me just encourage you in that, challenge you in that. Um, it is an important decision uh, and it's one God cares about um, and, it, and it's okay to be attracted to the person too. That, I think that's very important. So anyway, let's continue. Verse four. So Ada bore to Esau, Eliphaz, Basemath, Reol, uh, Olabama, or whatever her name is, born Joash, Yelam, Korah. These are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. So while Jacob is off uh, serving Laban, Esau is having children. And so what we're gonna see here is he has three wives who bear him five sons. And so they take all that stuff and eventually when the two brothers come back together in verses six through eight, Esau takes his wives, sons and daughters, all his members of his house, his livestock, all his beasts, all his property he acquired in land of Canaan. He went into a land away from his brother Jacob for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. And there it is again. Esau is Edom. So the two come back together, they have too much stuff, so they gotta separate. Esau goes south to the desert, to Seir, becomes Edom. Jacob goes to the land of Canaan, the promised land that God promised Abraham and Isaac and him. And so they separate. And then what you have next, and we're not gonna read it all, is just different sections of really how successful Esau's clan has become, right? And so in, chapter, in verses nine through 14, he's gonna talk about his grandsons. How many grandsons do he have? He has 10 grandsons, right? And so the, the family is growing, uh, in chapter, uh, and in, excuse me, the next section, in verse 15, it starts, the chiefs of Esau. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau. And through 15 through 19, you're gonna see 13 chiefs. These are warriors, these are leaders, these are politicians, these are conquerors, these are princes, right? They have clout, they're in charge of stuff. They have land, right? They're growing. In verses 20 through 30, you have the chiefs of Horite, the sons of the, seer, of the seer of the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. When they went south, they end up conquering all these people and then they end up intermarrying with them and these become part of his family and there's 21 chiefs that are related to Esau from this Horite clan that they take over, that they dominate. And then the next, you, you have a new kind of classification, you have kings. These are the kings who reign in the land of Edom before any reign over the Israelites, right? So now we have kings, right, uh, who are ruling. There's eight of them, eight monarchies that are listed, listed here in the text. And it highlights that this is before Israel ever got a king. While there's kings for Esau, where is good old Jacob? He's down in Egypt. He's a slave. In fact, there's not gonna be a king in, in Israel for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so really, Esau is progressive here, 
right? I mean, Israel's living in the dark ages. They're enslaved. They're using eight tracks and, and Esau's streaming. He's using Spotify. They're way back there. We're progressive. We have kings and chiefs and clans. And then in verse 40, another section, there's more chiefs. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their clans and it lists them out. And so you got 11 more chiefs and 11 more members of the family who are dominating, who are ruling, who are warriors, who are conquering. And then that's the end of his kind of Facebook post. This is, look at my family. We started with just one. And look at us now. Chiefs, kings, conquerors, princes. We got land. We got stuff. And then 37 picks up and says this. Remember, the chapter divisions are artificial. They're not original. These, chapter 36 and 37 go together. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And these are his generations. We got Esau's generations. Then we got jo- Jacob's. And then we read Jacob's last week. What happened? What's going on with Jacob? Oh, his boys are out wandering, shepherding, selling their brother off into slavery. There's this contrast that Moses is, is bringing together. One family's ruling and living in palaces and leading and stepping on the necks of people and conquering and the other one's stepping on something. Sheep mess, just wandering around. And you say, who's winning? Esau or Jacob? And you, and you can imagine those, if there was a family reunion, they got together every year and, and Esau comes up and says, Jacob, you should see my boys. Man, they're... They're all going to Ivy League, they're politicians, they're warriors, captain of the football team. You should see their houses, they got houses, they got, they got stuff, they got wives, they got grandkids all over the place. Just look how good they're doing, right? How your, how's your family, Jacob? How, how's old Reuben? What's Reuben up to? Well, you know, Reuben, he's, he's shepherd, he's a shepherd. Oh, that's great. What's Levi up to? He's a shepherd. How about Gad? What's Gad up to? I remember the little old Gad, he's a shepherd. Naphtali, oh, he's a shepherd. Dan, he's a shepherd. Well, that's great. You guys, you guys seem real happy. You know, somebody's got to take care of the sheep. I mean, we pay somebody to do that. But, you know, your, your boys, I'm sure they're doing great. Where y'all living these days? You see, I mean, my boys got palaces and, and tents and, and the, for a year, and they got land and, and all this stuff. Where are, your, where, where are you guys living? Well, we, we just kind of wander around Canaan. You know, we stay somewhere for a while and then we take the sheep somewhere else and they wander off and don't really have a place. Well, I, you know, that's, that's fine, Jacob. Good, good for you. You know, you know, that whole promised land stuff. There's a lot of fine print in that, that birthright you stole from me in there, right? You know, all that God stuff, but that's good for you. You know, some, we need religious people like you, Jacob. You know, not us in, down, in, down in Edom because, you know, it's a rough land and what we need there is, is faith in ourselves. We need to be strong. But, you know, you know, religion's good. You, you, you guys need that up where you live. It's, it comes in handy, I'm sure. But, but we, we got everything we need right here. So when people come south, when they come south of that, that, that Dead Sea, they know that they have entered into the land of Esau, that we built this, that this is ours, that we rule here. And, and there's, this, there's this tension, right? Jacob, the chosen one, enslaved, wandering, serving. Esau, ruling, powerful, mighty, right? Not the chosen one. And if you ask during this time when this is written, who's winning? Esau's winning. Esau. So why does God put a passage like this 
in the middle of this narrative for us to see, to rub it in? No, I, th- I think there's some significant lessons uh, to be reminded of for not only the people of Israel, but for us. And just two of them, two simple lessons. They're not new, I don't think, but I think in a time like this, we need to be reminded of them. And here's the first one. Is be clear on what success is and what success is not. Be clear on what success or greatness is or greatness is not. One of my professors back in seminary, Dr. Howard Hendricks, used to say all the time, his greatest fear was not that we would fail, but that we would be successful in the wrong thing. And what this text is gonna remind the people of Israel and and us by way of application is that material prosperity does not necessarily mean success. That physical power does not mean greatness. That earthly authority and, and even greatness does not mean that one is great in God's eyes. There's nothing wrong with prospering. God causes people to prosper all the time. There's nothing wrong with, with having authority and, and, and moving up the ladder and, and, and doing well. There's, there's nothing wrong with those things at all. If God does that in your life, that's his common grace. But the reminder is that is not how God calculates greatness. The greatest man who ever walked the face of the earth when he died, they were able to shoot dice for all that he actually had in, the, in his whole world. Just as his close, the Lord Jesus. The greatest apostle in the New Testament, Paul, at the end of his life, has nothing. He's in jail. He tells Timothy, Timothy, just bring my cloak and my books. That's all he's got at the end, right? And what Jesus teaches about greatness is if you're doing this right and, 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 and success, is that it, you, will, you will store up treasure in a way that it cannot be taken away, that, that rust or thief will not get to it. So just, some, just a few reminders. What does the Lord Jesus say about greatness? What does he say about success? He tells his disciples, they're arguing about who gets to sit next to him in the kingdom. And, and he says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord over this. And their great ones exercise authority over it. It shall not be so among you, among us. Whoever would be great, he says what? You gotta be a servant. It's so different and so radical from what we think. He says the path to greatness is not necessarily the Ivy League. The path to greatness is the washroom. It's the diaper genie. It's not the MBA, the PhD, the ivory tower. The path to to success is the fear of the Lord is, is the beginning of wisdom. Greatness is not necessarily standing on the podium it's kneeling, washing feet. And so Jesus models the greatest man who ever walked earth, the God man. He says elsewhere, next passage, he says, he's telling the disciples again, he's trying to teach them about success and greatness. He says, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest. And the point is, is the ch- children in that day were the, were the bottom of the pecking order. They were the least prominent. He says, you wanna be great. I mean, a lasting greatness successful, you, you gotta be at the bottom. You gotta, you gotta be willing to be humble. And again, I'm not saying, we've said this enough, so I think you'd get this. 
we're not saying you shouldn't strive for excellence and strive to do well and, and, and do your best at work. I would actually say that if you're not, that is sin. You should be the best worker and you should try to do your best and, and be as successful at that place where God has put you as possible. But just understand that doesn't mean greatness. Jesus says that greatness is humility. That's, that's where success is. That's where reward is. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, you want to have reward? You want to have great reward? It's not investing well. It's not buying Amazon at 35. Great reward is you are reviled and you're persecuted for my name's sake. You'll have great reward for that. And that, those, those kind of statements are hard for a couple of reasons. Number one, because our world system does not award you for doing what you accomplish for God. There's no Nobel Peace Prize for serving behind the scenes. And there is no Grammy for some mom who wakes up in the middle of the night and just sings her baby back to sleep. There's no teacher of the year award for helping your kids with their math or just teaching them simple truths of God. There's no fame for taking care of your parents when they get older. There's no praise for the single person who remains pure or for for the person who goes and spends time with the lonely, uh, who prays for them constantly, who just gives an encouraging word to someone who's down, to volunteers when there's needs. In fact, we, we say, oh, that's nice. So what are you going to do with your life for real, though? Jesus says, that, that is greatness. And the world doesn't reward you for it. Another reason it's challenging is because worldly glory is now, and it is instant, and it is visible, and it is immediate, and God's is often invisible, and later, in 1992, my senior year in high school, I won the defensive player of the year for my conference league, whatever that was. I know, everyone's excited about that, right? Um, so I got up and I got my trophy and everyone clapped. And, you know, I got my two minutes of, of that and they handed it to me and I sat down. And then they gave out the real awards, you know, the MVP and the offensive awards that everyone really cares about. And then everyone back to eating their chicken salad and everyone forgot, Right? And it was, a, it was a quick moment, and it was short-lived, and it was over. And it, again, that's not, those things aren't bad. Awards aren't bad. Rewards aren't bad. But those just, we have to understand that those immediate, those, those things we, we grasp for and our identity is wrapped up in, even with our kids, or look at what my children do. They go to this, they go to that. that that's just short-lived, right? It's a Facebook post that people like, and it's way down on your feed within a day, and no one sees it again. Right? And, the, and what God promises is not only that he sees it, but his reward is forever. And so that's why he says, when you give, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Your father who sees in secret will reward in secret. Right? And he says, hey, you give just even a cup of water because you're my disciple. There's no way you'll ever lose that reward. I will reward that. No one will see it. No one will see you caring for the homeless. No one will see you doing that. I see it. No one's gonna reward you now. I will reward you, right? And it's just, this, this is a reminder that we, we can right now have impacts that ripple into eternity. And we may not see it until then, but we will see it then. And so the difference between Esau, who is living for now, and Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is they're not living for a biblical medal or a trophy but something greater. The writer of Hebrews says this about them. He says, they were, they were commended through their faith, but yet they didn't receive what was promised. Since God had prom- provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should 
they should not be made perfect. The idea is there, they were made these great promises of all these things. They never saw them. They didn't see the fulfillment of them. Abraham died. Isaac died. Jacob died. The, the, the ultimate fulfillment, they didn't see in their lifetime. They doubt, they'd without it, right? Verse 10 of Hebrews 11 says, they look forward to a city that has foundations whose designer and builder was God. Their, their reward came later, right? Esau is winning now. Jacob is going to win later. And so right after in this passage in Hebrews 11, when, he, when the writer's encouraging us, he says, therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings and run with endurance. He's saying, hey, you be like them who is looking to something after. So lay aside those things that is keeping you from running well. He who dies with the t- most toys does not win. He, he just dies. So if you want to seek greatness and success, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and he, all these things will be added. And so greatness, even though the world may not value, is things like loving your enemy. That's greatness in God's eyes. Or f- forgiving someone who has wounded you. That's, that's greatness. Here's something that God sees as greatness is when you can go to someone and say, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? That's greatness. That's humility, right? Greatness is patience, which is probably running short in the time of staying at home and kids running around and looking for things to do. Greatness is gentleness, right? Faithfulness, the fruit of the spirit, joy. Not valued Necessarily not going to get a trophy, but in God's eyes, the fruit of the Spirit. That's what, that's what greatness and success looks like. And so we've had, most of us have had more time uh, of, of kind of sitting around than usual. Maybe some of us have still been busy. But I, I would encourage you, as we continue in this season of uh, sitting at home, what it, ask, ask the question, what does it look like for me right now to be to be patient? Or to be faithful. Faithfulness is one of the fruit of the Spirit. What does it look like for me as a high school student living at home right now to be faithful? What does it look like for me as an employer who's all my, my employees are furloughed to be faithful? What does it look like to be a grandfather? To be a faithful right now. And think about those things. Let God kind of speak in you. Again, this Holy Spirit in you. This is what it looks like. This is what I want to cultivate in you in this season this season that we think is evil, but God says, I'm, no, I'm meaning this for good, right? What does it look like to follow? But I think this passage reminds us, what does what greatness look like? I mean, real, lasting greatness. And the second lesson is this, is that we remember that God plays the long game, that, that it, it is never immediate. One commentator that almost everyone quotes for this passage says this, Secular greatness, in general, grows up far more rapidly than spiritual greatness. Let me say it again. Secular greatness, in general, grows up far more rapidly than spiritual greatness. That's what we see in Esau. That's what we see in Jacob. It's just like weeds in your yard, right? You cut the grass. The next day, there's weeds. It grows up quick. But see, those things, as as fast as they grow, they have no root. They're so easy, you just kind of pull them out and they're gone. But, but it's that turf, that grass, it takes a long time to build and be strong, but yet it's strong and it lasts, right? 
And the one here who is chosen, the one who is blessed, the one who is elect is the one who is, is wandering and then he goes down into Egypt and they are slaves for 400 plus years and then they come out and they gotta wander again and then they gotta conquer the land and it's years and years and years till some of these promises come true. And, and the reality is the promised spiritual blessing for us sometimes takes major patience and faith and is challenging. And I think one of the most challenging things for us as followers of Jesus is for us to be faithful, to us to be following the best we can and to not see success like those who are not. To look over there to that guy, to that Esau who doesn't care about God, who does care less about doing right and that person is thriving and here I am trying to do my best for God and live my life for God and I am not thriving. That is a huge challenge for us, right? That's huge. But God plays the long game. Here's what Paul says to Timothy. I think this is a, a great verse for us in quarantinedom, or at least for another season. He tells his protege, train yourself for godliness. Train, get, go into training. It's, it's, a, it's an athletic term. just like running or lifting weights or yoga, or whatever you're doing. Train yourself for godliness. Why? Because bodily training is just of some value. But godliness is of value in every way. Why? Because it holds promise for this life and for the life to come, right? And so, I mean, I think one of the benefits of this, of this season is it's an opportunity for us, some of us to slow down a little bit, maybe spend a little bit more time thinking about what does God wanna do in my life? Where do I need to grow? And to, to go into a physical, I mean, a spiritual training for godliness that takes, by the way, longer than just, just the success that's instant in the world, right? To, to, to really dig down in those areas that, man, you, got, you have struggled with your anger or your patience or your generosity. This is a time to, to go into spiritual training. God, move in my heart, change me from the inside out to start memorizing maybe a, a passage or two to renew our mind, to reflect on what, what does God wanna do? To really lean into this season even though it's, it's a frustrating time, to, as Paul says later in 1 Timothy, pursue righteousness, pursue godliness, pursue faith, pursue love, pursue steadfastness, pursue gentleness, because in the end, these things not only benefit us now, they benefit our relationships and our family, they benefit us at our workplace, but they have promise for life to come, right? It's worth it. God plays the long game. And even this text, so Jacob's promised this, Esau's promised this, there's gonna be tension between these two. There are, there's battles, there's wars. When Israel comes out of Egypt, they try to go through Edom. They actually ask the king, hey, we're brothers, will you let us just kind of cut through your land? The king of Edom says, nope, can't cut through our land. Nice brother. So they gotta go all the way around. There's tension that goes down thousands of years until the last two, the last tension between these two comes on a Friday morning in about 33 AD, when the last Edomite king is standing there in his robes and he's rich and he gets millions of dollars from the kingdom of Rome every year and in front of him is the Jacob king, the king, the descendant of Jacob. Just a carpenter turned rabbi standing before him and Esau's descendant mocks him and he, and he, uh, tries to get him to do a miracle and he won't do anything and he, and he dresses him up. That, that's the final confrontation for these, for these two, right? Jesus of Nazareth, Herod, the Edomite. 
And we know how that ends. Jesus is crucified, but he raises victorious. And now, right now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father, waiting for the Father to say, go get your bride, go get the church. Where is Esau now? The Edomites were completely wiped out in 70 AD, and you cannot find any Edomites anywhere. Why? Because God plays the long game, right? God plays the long game. And in the end, everything God said happened, everything he promised would go through, came through, and Jesus rules and reigns. The one who would bless all the nations coming from Jacob has done so in Jesus. And so we, just a reminder. Yes, Esau, seems like he's winning. Kings, princes, authority, power, money, land, everything. Where's, where's Esau? And where's Jesus? Just a reminder for us as a church, a simple passage with a bunch of names that has significant meaning. The, the 19th century cricketeer, slash, actually as early as 20th century, cricketeer slash missionary to Africa, C.T. Studd, said this famous quote, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. So, reminder, what does is, what is true success and greatness look like? It's, it's humility, it's serving Christ, it's those things which are done for eternity. That's what this passage teaches us. And it reminds us that God plays the longing. And one day, everything you've done in secret, in his name, you'll stand before this descendant of Jacob, this king of kings and lord of lords, and you will hear, well done. And that will last beyond a little trophy that'll last into all eternity and it will not be taken away from you and it will never go away. And that's what we live for, church, even in this season, even in this struggle, we live for what God says is successful and we're reminded that God is sovereign and he plays the long game and that he, in the end, will stand and only those things which are done for him will stand. Let me pray and I'll ask our team to come and lead us in a song or two We'll reflect on this. And again, let me, let me just remind y'all, if there's needs in our body, financial needs, you've lost a job, uh, prayer needs, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. We are available. You can put it on the connect card that's on uh, Facebook or YouTube. You can call the church. You can email us and, and we're here. Uh, we wanna be here for y'all. We wanna meet needs as they come up. Um, and as we have opportunities for y'all to serve, we'll continue to put those on the website and on Facebook. But just wanna be the church, want us to serve well together, want us to love y'all well and care for y'all well. So let me pray. Father, I ask that um, we would be reminded and remember well that uh, you have a definition of success. It's not the same as, as the world's, uh, that you bless and you give, but ultimately it's those who, who love you with their whole heart, mind, and strength. Those are the ones who are great and successful and that you will, you will last, you will win. What is done for you will last. And so that we will be a church that just reminded of that, especially when so many things have been taken away. So many things are, are right now in flux. This is a great reminder of that. Maybe that's one of the, the benefits that you are meaning for good for your church, that we would get back to the simplicity of just loving people well and knowing you. We just pray these things in Jesus' name.